We all have patients who frustrate us and who we consider difficult because they don't follow the rule book for good patient behavior. You will never change their behavior. But the good news is that you can actually change the way you think about difficult patients. That is a direct quote from our interviewee today. Dr. Joan Nadorf is a board-certified emergency physician and has practiced for nearly 30 years in the busy emergency departments of Inova Alexandria Hospital and Fort Belvoir Community Hospital in Virginia. She recently published a book entitled Changing How We Think About Difficult Patients, a guide for physicians and healthcare professionals. So this is what we're discussing. We discuss ways to reframe interactions or change perspectives on patients that cause our blood pressure to elevate when we walk in the room or before we even walk in the room. Maybe it's a certain diagnosis or complaint that does this, or it's a frequent flyer that never seems to get better. Dr. Nadorf gives us some techniques for grounding our thoughts and helping us empathize again. As an author and speaker, she has been sharing important ideas with students, residents, and practicing physicians through various online and direct engagements. Dr. Nadorf trained at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine and Einstein Medical Center in Philadelphia, and she was recently appointed to the editorial advisory board of the DO Magazine. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Joan Nadarf, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Hey, Brad. Thanks for having me. I am so glad that I had the opportunity to read your book because I really needed it right now. I really needed it. And the reason is I've become so acutely aware of the effect that some of my patients have on me, right? I'll see a name on a schedule and just dread the visit or dread the phone call or just recognize how draining they can be. So I read the book and I loved it. And you basically said that this is all my fault. This is my fault too. It's my fault too. Everything else is my fault. And now this is also my fault. No, you know, what you said is we have more control over that than we realize. That was the big takeaway for the book. And then, you know, you give us a guide for how we can take more control of it. So thank you. I think that your point, I might've blamed for this too. It's probably not the best way to think about it. The point that I try to make is that no one's to blame. And using words like blame and fault are probably not useful for us, but we are responsible for the way that we think about our patients because the patient coming into the office is not a problem. It's what our thoughts are about them. I mentioned to you in the book that I was always having problems with patients or I had bad feelings about patients who came in with nosebleeds or patients who came in with fish bones in their throat. And you mentioned to me, I love those problems. Yes, they're the best. Oh, it's so cathartic when they come in. And one, there's actually a fishbone there. And two, you get it out. Oh, it's just such a great feeling for you and the patient. Doesn't feel that way as an emergency physician. Here's what's happening. They're really anxious. It's hard to settle them down. We don't all have the right equipment that you do. So frequently we can't help them for the nosebleed. They spatter blood all over us. And I would feel inadequate. The patients would be unhappy and I'd probably end up having to call you anyway, or one of your colleagues who is taking consults. So I think that example just shows that it's not the patient, 
it's our thoughts about the patient. So I think later on, we'll talk about how myself, other emergency physicians can improve their thoughts about nosebleed patients. I think it gets back to thinking, what about those names that you see on your ledger for that day that you're going to see, you know, Mrs. Smith at two o'clock and you start dreading it. You're having some thoughts about them, that that lady, that she's a difficult patient. And the question is, why is she a difficult patient? The answer is that she, in some way, is not following the rules, is not doing what you want her to do, doesn't have some complaint that you can easily fix, maybe not coming to her appointments, not filling her prescriptions, not taking the medicines. In general, they're just not going along with the plan. And of course, not everybody has the same idea of what the plan is, and not everybody knows what the rules are. That's where the starting point of a lot of discussion in the book is how and why do we consider the patients difficult? And if we can actually change the way that we think about them and those thoughts, we can get to a point where they're not torpedoing our whole day and making us you know, want to leave medicine. In the book, you mentioned James Grove's article, I think it was from the New England Journal, where he created these four categories of hateful patients, right? And that was the name of the article the four categories of hateful patients, to actually say it in writing. And he categorizes them as dependent clingers, entitled demanders, manipulative help rejectors, and self-destructive deniers, right? Those were his categories, right? I think it's helpful for us to hear that as physicians, because then we recognize that we're not the only ones that are experiencing this. So just the fact that I'm not alone in thinking this makes me feel better about the situation. But is it helpful to categorize patients? And is it helpful to categorize them like that? Probably not referring to them as hateful. That's not a thoughts, right? You control it for your thinking of them right. as being, being hateful and self-fulfilling prophecy. This was a landmark article when it came out. And just to be clear, it came out before I even was in medical school. But when I put this talk together, a number of years ago. This was the landmark article. He was a psychiatrist on the consultation service at Massachusetts General Hospital. And he put this out as a special article in the New England Journal. I think we should put a link in if, if our listeners want. It's worth reading because it's a very interesting article. And I think it is worth looking at those four categories. For one thing, he does a pretty good job uh, of defining them. And he, he does call them stereotypes. He uses the word hateful, which people didn't like. And it was like, because I don't think physicians were always held in this very exalted, esteemed manner. And it wasn't even, we would never even admit that there were some patients that we didn't like, much less hate. So they're pretty strong words. And he got a lot of blowback over it. And there's a lot of articles written in response to it over the years. But I think it's pretty useful to, to think about the four types. I'll just mention them briefly. The clingers, these are very needy patients who are endless with needing attention and reassurance. They're always asking for, um, they, they use flattery and childlike behavior to seduce the physician, not real seduction, but just to get them endless attention and reassurance. And at first one can feel really flattered by getting all this attention and want to try and help them. But that kind of makes it worse because then you get enmeshed in this relationship with the patient. But what, what, and there's a lot of, this is a psychi a psychiatrist writing this uh, article the, the, there is a lot of dependency and uh, there's a fear of abandonment on these type of patients and the physicians need to set limits on the expectations. The next type is the entitled demander. Now, 
in the emergency department, we see this patient a lot. This is the person who's coming in and telling us they're on the hospital board before they've even, you know, told us what their problem is. They want special treatment and they, some, they use threats and intimidation. If you're hearing in your office, someone threatening to give you a bad review or bring you to the board of medicine or start a lawsuit, this is an entitled demander, someone who's trying to get control your behavior by threatening you. And, and it helps when you're in this situation to say, oh yeah, this person fits into this category because then you can put a little pause before you overreact. And because we're only human and doctors get really resentful when someone's trying to threaten us or control us or manipulate us. And there's a certain way that Dr. Groves goes over how we should respond to those people. The manipulative help rejectors are people who never seem to get better. They have a quenchless thirst for some sort of emotional supply from the physicians. They're very poor compliers. And they always seem to come up with new complaints, even when you fix something. I don't know who is coming into your ENT office, but there may be some people like this who always seem to come up with a new complaint. Those people seem to be afraid that if something gets better, then the relationship with the physician is going to end. And they have to be kind of reassured that you're still going to be there for them. And they don't have to keep coming up with new symptoms. Sorry to interrupt. That seems an overlap with the dependent clingers. Because as I'm conjuring up different images of patients who this applies to, the dependent clinger and the manipulative help rejector, that seems to have some overlap. Yeah, I think there are some overlaps to these categories. Like he mentioned in the intro to his article that they're just stereotypes. But I think that the entitled demand are definitely throwing their weight around that there are people of influence and the manipulative help rejector is not so much that is that they're just not really that compliant and, and keep on coming back with new complaints. The fourth category that he mentioned was a self-destructive denier. And, and these are people that we see who are like alcoholics and cigarette smokers or people who are, have drug addiction issues, who don't really take responsible for their own care and, and keep on coming back and the health providers have to take care of them. And sometimes we get sucked into their downward spiral of low expectations and, and we feel like we can do nothing for them. So physicians kind of hate dealing with them because we feel like, oh, we just sober them up and they go out and they come back a week later or a couple of days later. I think it helps to think about our patients, what they're going through, what they're reacting. I think the way that we feel about them, it gives us guidance to some clue of what we can change about our thoughts. And I feel that, again, once you're aware, you don't have to overreact when you're frustrated. Sometimes they're angry or hostile and we tend to mirror their emotions and we can put the pause on that. And I think that the emotions that we have are clues that we need to be more curious about what's going on and try to understand them better. Kind of like personality disorders, right? If we recognize that someone has some narcissistic tendencies, once we recognize those tendencies for what they are, it helps us take a greater view, a better perspective, and then we can manage it as well as our own expectations. Same as someone has like a borderline personality disorder, right? Sometimes patients will split the doctor. You're the hero and the other one's the villain. And you can see like, and rather than just taking that adulation at face value, recognize, you know what, next time I'm going to be on this patient's poop list because they're going to, tomorrow they're going to wake up and suddenly I'm the villain. So I need to just, you know, manage my emotions, manage my expectations and manage the patient and their issue the way that I think is the most appropriate. Exactly. You know what to expect. It is a great way to be prepared in your interaction with the patient. If you go in and if you've evaluated someone and you think they have some sort of viral infection 
and you're expecting, oh, here's the part where they insist that they need an antibiotic prescription. And then you have to be ready for it because if you're not clear on how you're going to respond in that situation, you're going to have a lot of issues like your whole career. So speaking of expectations, I think that's a lot of what you were getting at with the difficult patient. And I think the nosebleed example is a good one, right? Because if you have a patient that's coming into the emergency department with a nosebleed, as opposed to the one that I see in my office, yours, your patient is actively bleeding. They're overwhelmed. They're probably soaked in blood. They're getting blood everywhere. And so even before you walk into the room, you have this image in your mind and what the nosebleed patient looks like. Even though you've never met this patient before, the curtains are sprayed with blood. You try packing their nose and they start screaming and you come back later and they pull the pack out of their nose. You've already gone through this scenario in your head. And so your expectation, so even before you walk in the room, they're already a difficult patient. Whereas from my perspective as an otolaryngologist, a nosebleed patient is sitting quietly waiting because they're not actively bleeding at the time. You can generally make their problem resolve pretty easily. It might take a visit or two, but usually, and then, and then you know, they're very grateful. It's pretty straightforward. And there's not like our patients who maybe have dizziness where it's a lot of vague symptoms in completely out of sequence. It's like, I got three nosebleeds, right? It's pretty easy to catch the history and fix the problem. So we frame it before we even walk in the room. Even in the morning, probably when you walk into your office, you're looking at the roster for that day, already like doing a face plan at the patient who's going to be there at three o'clock. And in the emergency department, we have patients who are, we call them frequent flyers. It's not very kind, but they're there all the time and we know what they have. And we think, oh, it's going to be terrible. We have to see them again or certain or there's certain chief complaints that we don't really care for. We know that they're going to be a little bit hard. For the example of the nosebleed, I know that they're going to be anxious. I know it's going to be messy. It's on me to prepare for that. And if I have problems stopping it, I need to get better at doing it. If I have to call you in to do it, I need to stand there and watch you do it so I can do it better next time so I don't have to call you the next time. And there's a lot of preparation that needs to go into it and managing of thoughts. And I need to ask myself, how could I do this differently? How can I reassure them? This patient may have this fear that I'm going to bleed out because there's so much blood and it's such a mess and they're so anxious. And I need to reassure them that we're going to fix this for you. And it may take time. I think one of the other things you know makes them difficult for me is that start it, numb them up, pack them, come back, come back, come back. And I'd have to say to the patient, don't let any of the nurses take away all the equipment because you know they'll see us sitting on the Mayo stand and they want to clean up and take it away. I say, no, but I have to keep on coming back. And you know, of course, I'm taking care of 10 or 15 other patients at the same time. I can't just stand at their bedside until the treatment works. So, you know, we all have to figure out how it works for our kind of practice. Like you said, it's not the same as in your office where they're wearing a white shirt and not bleeding. (laughs) And I mention that to them every time they're wearing a white shirt. Obviously it's a different person every time, but yes, I I do mention that. You're coming in for nosebleeds. Don't wear fancy clothes. So there was something that you mentioned just now that you also mentioned in your book, which is that it's an opportunity to get better at it. So reframing, ah, it's another nosebleed as, oh, great, it's another nosebleed. It's an opportunity to get better at it. So that was one of the ways that you recommended that we can reframe cases that we find more challenging so that we are looking forward to them rather than dreading them. You know, I think we're only human and in our learning curve on every procedure, we have to learn how to do it. And if you're 
learning how to do a central line or learning how to do a lumbar puncture, just because you missed it two times doesn't mean you're not going to get the next one, unless you don't change the way you think about it. You know, you have to position them better, get the right size needle, have someone help you, maybe sedate them a little bit, whatever it is, you need to evaluate what didn't go right the last time and see if you can do it better or get someone who's mentoring you to come along and help talk you through it. There's, you know, beautiful chapter in Atul Gawande's book about him trying to learn how to do his first central line. And it took the resident standing by his side saying, I believe in you, you can do it for him to be able to do his first one. One of my mentors in training, a pediatric surgeon, he's not at, I don't think he's at Georgetown anymore, Al Shaheen, maybe some of the listeners know him, would always say, same way every day, never wrong. And 15 years since I first heard that and it stuck with me. But the converse to that is what you just said. Or same way every day, always wrong. So if it's not working for you, you got to change the way that you're doing things and maybe watch, be okay with being mentored. Be okay with, even if you've been doing it for a while, watching someone who, who maybe has a different perspective on it. But again, another another opportunity for learning. Your abilities change a little bit throughout the course of your career. And some of the thing, you know, some of the ways that, for example, people would, treat a shoulder dislocation, which is very physical and pulling on the patient. It doesn't really work for you when you get to be uh, a certain age and learn a better way to do it. That didn't take as much brute strength and it worked. It was much better. So that's one way that we can reframe the difficult patient, right? What are some other ways that we can change the way we're thinking so that we can, they can stop being one of the hateful patients? Yeah. I think the most important thing you can do is to ask better questions, especially for some of the people like the self-destructive type people, you have to look and find something else that's true about them. For example, I use in the book a talk about in, in the emergency department, a lot of kind of young drunk guys come in and you have to think of this as someone's son or someone's father, someone's brother, and try to think of them in a more, um, charitable way, even an old lady who is an elderly patient who's annoying you or difficult, not compliant, that's someone's mother or someone's sister. And and if you can think that way, and I'm pretty sure my mother was pretty cantankerous at the end when she was had to visit the emergency department. And I hope somebody was really kind to her. So I, I think that little technique right there was one of the biggest game changers for me when I read about it, when I started doing it myself, because not only do I feel more compassionate towards my patient, who's actually in the emergency department in front of me, but I actually had compassion for the mother or the sister who weren't even there because I knew like I was doing my best for them because I know that somebody loved this person who didn't really seem that lovable in the moment, but I was certain there was probably someone. I've thought that before about not a patient who is difficult, but uh, someone who is having a lot of like social difficulties, right? He didn't have a place to sleep. And and what I thought was, man, this, he was like, I have three sons, right? So he is someone's little boy. And to think that like, this could happen to one of my boys at some point in their life just tears me up. So it really, it's a, it's an easy way for us to humanize our patients more and and feel a little more Empathy. I, I really like that technique and, and haven't used it on my difficult patients, but I should start. Yeah, no, it's a good one. And I think when your difficulty comes from sort of some sort of impasse, for example, say you feel like somebody should be admitted 
and they want to go home. And this is when I talk about in the book, something called thought distortions is things are not all or nothing. The question that one needs to ask, is there another, is, is there something else that could be true here? Is there another way to deal with this problem? So choice A would be that the patient gets admitted, gets monitored, gets all the treatment they need. And then they tell you, they might be perfectly good reason that they may have a disabled person at home that they're monitoring, or they may have a dog or something. They need, they can't be admitted. And you have to find some middle ground with them to agree for them to come back at a certain later date or a later time, or to see the cardiologist in the morning or whoever it is, there has, you can document that you advised the first plan instead of just saying, okay, you have to sign out AMA. I don't think that's productive. I don't think it's helpful. It really isn't in the patient's best interest. We want them to get their medical care. It would be nice if it were optimal. We have to, we have to be the ones that bend a little bit to come to some collaboration with difficult patients. So one of the examples that you wanted to talk about was relevant right now is the unvaccinated, right? So you're seeing a lot of patients sick with COVID who aren't vaccinated. And I mean, first of all, why, why would you classify them as difficult? Well, I find that they're fall into that kind of self-destructive denier category from Dr. Groves. I think most of my colleagues, most of the healthcare providers, professionals view that if patients would allow themselves to get vaccinated, that they would prevent really severe COVID infections. Now, and then a lot of the people who aren't able to get vaccinated wouldn't get as sick. There wouldn't be as much spread. And then you wouldn't get as sick. You, the patient, are putting me at risk right now. Why? Because you're in my ER. Why are you in my ER? Because you didn't get vaccinated. Now you're putting me at risk. You're putting my family at risk. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, you know, we've had other pandemics, epidemics. When I was training, HIV was first made its appearance, didn't really know how it was spread at first, just like young people were dying and was very mysterious and various others practicing during Ebola. But physicians and nurses did not feel as threatened as they do now. And they're, they're kind of scared to bring it home to their families. So we're viewing I'm using the collectively viewing the unvaccinated as difficult patients and they know it. And, and they know that when we are talking to them, that we're angry with them and we think, and whatever we say to them, have you been vaccinated? They hear dummy or even worse, the words in our minds. And they already think that we're arrogant know-it-alls. And that isn't the way to get them to find some common ground and collaborate uh, on what we can do. Because, you know, any time you can convince one person to get vaccinated, you're making a really big change. First, I didn't ask that question because I don't believe that they're difficult. I just wanted to hear, because I don't see that often in my office, whereas this is what you see a lot of in the emergency department. So I just wanted to hear rather your definition of why they're included in the difficult, not because I didn't believe it. So then how do you get there? How do you see them as the, the person they are and not the another anti-vaxxer? I think there's some reason that they're acting or believe the way they do, that a lot of them feel that the vaccine is going to be more harm to them than a COVID infection. I think they're getting misinformed. I'm not sure where they're getting all their information. We can see the spread of a lot of misinformation. And I think a lot of uh, there have been certain suggestions or notions out there 
that it's not safe to get while you're pregnant, or it may affect your future fertility, or causing orchitis in men, and all these sort of things. And these are the echo chamber of social media has let some of these things just run amok. And so I think if you can ask them, what are your concerns? And if there is something really that you can, that they can tell you about, you can try to address them individually and and try to, they're scared about something. Now, could some people, I think some physicians have been taken by surprise on this. I think probably pediatricians and people in, in that realm have known much more than the rest of us, that there are a lot more anti-vaxxers out there than we realized. But I think we have to approach them in that way, try to address their fears, get curious. Why don't you want to take it? Can you really tell me about it? Maybe they don't want, maybe their father or mother is against it. So they think they should be too. If you really address that issue, maybe you can say it's okay for you to make your own decisions. But when they come in with active COVID, right, it's, you're not trying to convince them to get the vaccine. We actually We have a great interview with Joe Weiner, who's a psychiatrist at Northwell, where we do motivational interviewing. It's two parts. It's one on motivational interviewing, and then the other is specifically for the COVID vaccine. But but with regards to now you've got a patient in your ER who is actively sick with COVID, and you're like, you you did this to yourself. You did this. You could have gotten the vaccine. So how do you get past? I just view it as like the smokers who have COPD. They did not realize it's a, it's all some sort of mental construct that there's a disease out there. And then when they start getting sick, they still need our compassion, like all our other patients. And I'm going to do my best. And my colleagues are going to do their best to help get you better. I think they're going to ask, how can, how can we, they're already sick, obviously try and explain to them what they're going to do, how we're going to prevent the rest of their family from getting sick and, and how we can try to agree to what the treatment plan is going to be. Take us through the, the think, feel, act cycle. Cause I thought that was really helpful in, in changing the way we perceive these patients. Okay. So that is kind of an awareness tool. And it's a way of looking at the world and consider how in this situation, circumstances and events that are beyond our control, these are situations, and then they're kind of neutral. They're just out there. It's like someone with a nosebleed. You think it's great. I think it's not great. And everything is neutral until a human has a thought about it. It's like Schrodinger's cat, right? It's both alive and dead at the same time. So it's a, the patient is both good and bad at the same time. Difficult and easy. Yes. Okay. Until you look at the cat. You know, we we have thoughts about everything. We have thoughts about our patients. They're just sentences in our brain that give some sort of meaning to event or a situation. And then, and it's important to remember this, and then our thoughts cause our feelings. If I see a father very sick, saw a father kind of hunched over his son who just had newly diagnosed DKA, and I felt really sad. I'm not feeling his sadness. I'm feeling my thoughts are that's terrible. It must be so horrible to be a parent in that situation. And and I feel sad. It's from my thoughts. So your thoughts create your own feelings and emotions. And those are just sensations in your body. And then as a result of the actions or how you feel, you act or you do things in a certain way. It's how you show up in this context of the medical offices and the emergency department 
our actions, what we do or we don't do for a patient gets us our results. The main result is we want for is to have the patient leave the office or get admitted to the hospital or get sent home from the emergency department. We'd like for them to get better, be on the road to getting better, have a plan of action for how to get better. And so context and the way I talk about it in the book, I explain it in a lot more depth, is that the patient coming into the medical setting is the event that we have no control over. Someone comes in from an ambulance, someone walks in your office, you don't even know basically maybe one or two words of what their chief complaint is. And then you get to form whatever thoughts that you formulate about them. You derive from taking a history and asking all the right questions and listening to them. We have all this data about how quickly doctors interrupt their patients. We're not even really listening to them because we're trying to guide them to one of these little diagnoses that we know how to treat instead of listening and addressing all their issues. I talk about how the patients are feeling and then how the healthcare professionals are feeling in those situations. And then towards the end of the book, I talk about the things we can do to change it, to change our thoughts about them. Any last tips for that last action for changing those thoughts? I think that one of the most useful tools that I found over the years is to view some of their, some of the patient's difficult behavior as a symptom of their disease. I think that sometimes when some people are very angry, maybe a COPD patient, this is what they, a symptom of their losing their independence or being dependent, that, that terrible feeling they can't get enough oxygen. And if you view some of the possibly like violent behavior of some of your patients as this is a symptom of disease, you don't make it mean something like they're being difficult or they're acting out, just like you wouldn't really be mad at someone if their blood sugar is high or their sodium was low. So if you can view some of their behaviors through that lens, I find that to be very helpful as well. And then the last thing that I, I want to mention something because I took it away from your book is that sometimes difficult patients, we perceive them as difficult because they're just not getting better. Like you said, they didn't read the book. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. They're not getting better. Like they're back on your schedule again because they're not getting better. And we, sometimes that gives us a feeling of insecurity. They're not getting better because I'm inadequate. And so I think it's helpful for, to just name that, like we've said with other things, just name that just, they're not getting better ah, they're not better. It's actually, the onus is on you to get them better. And if they're not getting better, then again, it's your fault, right? You're the doctor, it's your fault. But just realizing that's why you're finding them difficult, I thought was a helpful exercise. In response to that, I think that, because one of the thought distortions that I talked about was personalization. And we take it personally, we view it as a sign of defeat or inadequacy if we can't get our patients better. But as we know, everyone is going to die at some time. And one of us is going to be the last nurse or physician at the bedside with those people. And it, it's not a sign of inadequacy or loss. Sometimes that's our job to steward them through the end of life. So I think it's important to you know, have that self-awareness and not to over-personalize when you can't find a diagnosis or you can't get them better because you can't make everyone better. I guess the oncologists know this best of all. And I think for particularly in my area of expertise and perhaps in yours, you need to know that here are the patients I can help and here are the ones I can't really help. Either because their disease is so far gone, there's just nothing to be done or they would be better served seeing another professional, another specialist in a certain area. And it's very important to know that because you waste a lot of time, you view them as difficult 
And I'm not saying refer everybody, but sometimes it's helpful to know that a patient would be better served with some sort of specialist in that area of care. And then they have a plan because a lot of times that's really what the patient needs. They just need a plan. They don't need resolution. They prefer resolution, but if they don't have resolution, they're fine as long as there's there are steps to be taken and they know that they're going to be looked after. So, And it's really important for them to know that you care, that things go well. And if, if you're coming at them with anger, that's why what you think really matters. The whole book is about being more intentional about the way you think. And if you can think with a little bit more generosity and kind of move the dial towards more compassion, the patients will know that. And they can even accept that you don't exactly know what's going on or you're not totally better, but there, you care and there is a plan. So tell us about the book and where we can find it. The book is called Changing How We Think About Difficult Patients, a guide for physicians and healthcare professionals. It is published by the American Association for Physician Leadership, and it is available through their website, and it will be available through Amazon as well. Nador, thanks for the book. Like I said at the beginning of the interview, I needed that. It's definitely helped me not dread my schedule so much, and I'm sure it's going to help a lot of our listeners. I am so excited to get the message out there because I think a lot of our colleagues need to hear this right now. I need all you people to take care of me someday. (laughs) That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.